This is what Jesus says in Matthew 7, verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes, bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 13. The title of the message this morning is The Road Home. The Road Home. If you've read uh, C.S. Lewis' famous book, The Problem of Pain, it probably means at some point in your life you had a really bad day. Um, but the introduction to his book, he talks about the fact that when he was asked by the publisher to write the book, The Problem of Pain, he asked that the book be published anonymously. And the reason was this, is he said, I want to be able to describe to people what it's like to walk through pain uh, with Christ and the power of the gospel, but I don't want to give the impression I have any idea of what I'm doing. He was concerned in writing these things that folks might say, oh, C.S. Lewis knows how to walk through pain. He's saying, no, I know how to do it wrong, but I can tell you what that looks like in my life. And as we go through a passage like this morning where Jesus is going to describe to us the road home, the road between today and the day we're with him, he describes a difficult road. And the difficulty for any of us in thinking about this passage is we might get the impression that we can take this too lightly because all of us are suspect as to whether or not we've experienced pain to the degree that this passage might be describing. But we have to remember that it's easiest to hear from people about what it's like to walk down a road of difficulty if they have a few scars to show for it, isn't it? And what we get to do as we hear from this passage today, we realize the road of difficulty is being described by the one who has the scars to show for it. This is coming from Christ who suffered unlike any other, and he suffered on our behalf. So as we read these, we must not be lulled into thinking that maybe he's being cavalier, or maybe he has no idea what our suffering is like. Jesus is talking about the road home, very well acquainted with the bumps and difficulties and scars and challenges that occur as we make our way down the road from this day till the day that we are going to see him. The road home. If you've ever needed to get somewhere, you might use a GPS. You program the address you want to go into, it'll tell you how to get where you're going. And usually it will tell you turn by turn. But it won't tell you what it's like to get there. You notice the GPS person isn't going to tell you what the road is like. Isn't going to tell you what the conversations will be like in the car on the way there. It won't tell you whether or not the car will keep running on the way there. It won't tell you whether or not there's a pothole, unless it's a very detailed GPS. In order to find out what the road is going to be like, especially if you're going on a long journey, you might have to go by a travel guide. You might have to look up somewhere else. What's the weather going to be like in that place? What is, you might need to take your car to the mechanic. You might need to sit down with your family before you get on the road and say, this is what this 
trip is going to look like. Good luck with that, but go ahead and try it. The kids might listen. If you've ever gone so far as to put tape on the seats where they can't cross, I don't know if, I don't know if that works or not. So a GPS, like I said, a GPS tells us how to get there. A travel guide tells us what it's like. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We might say that's the GPS passage. How do you get to the Father? Through Christ. Then we come to Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, and Jesus now says, but let me explain to you what that's going to be like. Let's talk about what that journey is going to be like. Look again at verses 13 and 14 of Matthew chapter 7. Enter by the narrow gate. The gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. The road home is not our first choice. Two opportunities, two ways to go. One has a wide, easy-going thoroughfare with very little difficulty. The other one is narrow, poorly marked, uninviting, and seems to invite difficulty. And the way to life, Jesus is saying, is that way. The road home would not be our first choice. If you weren't told where they went and all you said was, which path would you prefer? We would all say immediately, the, the wide road, the easy walk, the one with plenty of rest stops and coffee shops on the way. Well, what about this gate over here? No, that doesn't look inviting at all. In fact, I don't even know if that's a path. That looks like a walk through the wilderness. The road home is not our first choice. When given these two choices, we might quote the famous character in Star Wars. And I won't say which one because this line was uttered by dozens. I have a bad feeling about this. Spoken first by Luke Skywalker as they approach the Death Star. We just want to make sure we're accurate to the canon. But it was spoken by Han Solo, Princess Leia. If Jar Jar Banks said it, I'm going to have a problem, but I don't know if he did or not. I've lost half of you. If we came up to these two paths, we'd look at the wide path and we look at the narrow path, and Jesus says the narrow path is the one you're going to walk on in life, and we would say, I've got a bad feeling about this. The road home is not our first choice. And the metaphor he is using here, he's trying to use this metaphor of paths that need to be walked in order to tell us a couple of things. Is that the, the narrow path that he's calling us onto, life with him, is one that is not appealing. We wouldn't choose it. It is not inviting. We would choose not to go there if we could. And just by looking at the entrance of it, we would say that looks difficult. And in fact, this is a correct assessment of this path. We have to take Jesus at his word, and you need to confront this as a believer. Jesus says, says the journey between here and home with him is a difficult one. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. He doesn't qualify it. He doesn't say, but in, in some cases, he doesn't say in most cases. He just simply says, the path that you will walk on, having received life from me and anticipating the consummation of that life one day, is a path of difficulty. It is narrow. What is the word he uses there in verse 14? The way is what? Hard. It's uphill both ways in the snow. Why in the world would anybody walk on that path? Look at what it says. In verse 14, 
The gate is narrow. The way is hard that leads to what? Life. The reason we would walk on that path, the reason we'd be willing to encounter these difficulties and challenges and hardships is that is the way to life. The issue with this path is not what it's like on it. The question about this path is where does it go? Jesus says it this way over in John chapter 10, verse, uh, verse 10. John chapter 10, verse 10. I'm going to start in verse 7. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me, who came before me, are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and he will go in and out and find pasture. Verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. So Jesus is saying, I am coming to redeem you and bring you to myself so that you might have life. And not merely the ability to survive. What he is saying is, I want to give you life that is full. The fullness of life. Everything that is life in me, Jesus says, I am bringing to you. And if we understand the balance of Scripture, we have to understand 99.9% of that abundant life that we are going to experience in Christ is going to be experienced after our death, in eternity. He is saying, I am giving you abundant life. I'm not giving you abundant life immediately, but it is as sure yours as I am alive. So I need you to answer this question in your own mind. I've given you two things from the Bible that you get to decide if they're true or not. Number one, the way of Christ is hard. The road home, the way of Christ is not our first choice. Do you believe it or not? You can decide if you believe it or not. Secondly, what Jesus is saying, the destination is worth it. The destination is worth that road home. What Jesus is trying to tell us is whatever comes between now and the time we finally see him, no matter how bad it is, the destination of life is worth that path. And the reason Jesus is telling us is this. If the destination is not worth it, you probably won't be able to walk that path. One writer said it this way, Jesus didn't die so we could avoid the cross. Jesus died so that we could join him. Jesus didn't die so that we could avoid the cross. He obviously came to be our substitute on the cross, but he came that we might join him in suffering until the day comes that we might go home with him. You don't believe me, so let's read a couple of verses. Luke 14, verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, Jesus had a technique in his ministry. When he felt like the crowds were getting too busy, too big, he would tell them the truth. So I'm going to read what he says. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Okay, that's rough. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? 
Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and he's not able to finish it, everyone will mock him, saying, this man began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able to, uh, with 10,000, meet him who comes against him with 20,000? If he's not able to meet him, he'll send a delegation and ask for terms of peace. Now, Jesus is not mincing words here, and again, we ought not try to stunt the blow to qualify it in some way. Jesus is saying that in following me, it's a matter of carrying your cross. Now, we're not carrying the cross of salvation. Only Jesus could do that. But what Jesus is saying, to walk with me in this life from here to there, is a life that will be filled with difficulty and challenge and, in fact, suffering. Galatians 2.20, what does it say? Some of us haven't memorized. I'm going to turn to it because I tend to misquote. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In an effort not to be offensive, or in an effort to be offensive, the problem with this is this. Oftentimes, especially in crusade-style sales pitches for salvation, we are presented with all the benefits of what Christ offers the individual, and many times we hear these crusade-style pitches, and we wonder, why would anyone say no? Why would anyone turn down this Jesus who will make their life so unbelievably amazing? He will solve all your problems, and not only that, he will solve the problems you don't know about, Why would anyone say no to this? There must be a problem with you if you would say no to this. When we look at Jesus' words about what it means to walk in this life until we come to him in the future, we might say this. Why would anyone say yes? That's precisely what happened in Jesus' ministry when he shared these things. He said, here, I, I, I come offering life and forgiveness and grace. And one day we will experience that forever together. Hurrah! We're not there yet. Okay, so what's it going to be like between there and there? It's just kind of a precursor, right? He said, yeah, um, by the way, it's going to be hard. Because you're not home yet. When you get home, all of these things will be true. The question is whether or not that destination for us is good enough to walk the road that Christ has called us into. Is the de destination worth it? Maybe another way of saying this. Is Jesus worth it? Let's look at one guy in the scripture who understood this probably better than most. Matthew chapter 27. We read about um, a guy just before he got saved. Matthew 27, verse 44, just this one verse. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Okay, that's all we know about this guy so far. Jesus is crucified on the cross. On his right hand, he's got Bob. On his left hand, he's got Bill. I don't know why they crucified bees. Bob and Bill, I'm both Bob and Bill. Sorry for the Bobs and Bills in the room today. Both of them were making fun of Jesus. Two thieves on the cross, Jesus in the middle, and the robbers who were being crucified with him reviled Jesus, mocked him, 
along with everybody else, they were mocking him, saying he saved himself, he can't save, he, or I should say he saved others, but he can't save himself. If he's the king of Israel, let him come down from his cross. He trusts God, let God deliver him now. He said, I'm the son of God, so if he's the son of God, that God should be able to save him from this cross, and the, and the thieves were chiming in with him. One of the thieves, we learn over in Luke chapter 23, uh, was convicted of his comments. Luke chapter uh, 23, we read this. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other one rebuked him. So at some point during their crucifixion, one of the thieves said, You know, I, this doesn't feel right. I think this guy is who he says he is. So one of the other thieves turned to him and says uh, to his, his buddy, uh, Don't you fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? We indeed justly are condemned, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he turns to Jesus and he prays the prayer of salvation, so to speak. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Very simple prayer of faith. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, what is awesome to learn about this thief is from the moment of his salvation to the moment of his death, it was an upward crescendo of luxury, peace, and well-being. All his dreams came true. All his relationship problems were fixed. He got the job of his dreams. He found the purpose of his life. He no longer had illness, sickness, and disease. I'm being silly. Maybe you couldn't tell. What happened to this guy after he got saved? Well, slowly his lungs filled with fluid. He was doing what people on the crosses do. They would lift themselves up with their legs to keep themselves breathing. Slowly over time, fluid would develop around their heart and in their lungs. They would rasp and they would breathe and they would gasp. They would be up there for hours and hours and hours. Sometimes it would take days to die. They were lucky. They were being crucified with Christ, and the Jews wanted him off the cross before sundown. And the Romans had a big weekend planned. And so the Romans came by at a certain point in this guy's suffering and took a giant club and broke his legs so he could no longer support his own weight, and he would have died by suffocation. So that was the, the extent of his road with Christ. What benefit did Jesus bring him in his life? What benefit did Jesus bring him in putting his faith in him? What did he receive from Christ? He received life. I will remember you, and today you will be with me in paradise. That was enough for him. And we say, well, I've got a lot longer to live. The, the thief only had to make it three or four or five more hours. And this is the, the foolishness of our minds, is we think that somehow our lives are actually a little bit longer than his. The, the younger you are, the longer you think your life is. The older you get, how short do you think your life is? When you're getting close to the end, I'm, so I'm told, being 29, it's hard for me to know. I still don't think you should be laughing at that. You should be, yeah, he looks 29. Anyway, you, say, you look at the thief and you look at your own life, you're like, it was just as fast. It was a couple of hours. The thief is our model. If we get Christ only to benefit this life, we've misunderstood what Christ is, is doing for us. 
He is giving us life fully forever. And that what he is saying is between the moment we receive him by faith and the moment we see him forever, it is going to be, what was the word he used? Hard. The road home is not our first choice. And the road home will only be our choice if our hearts have been captured by Christ. And we say, ah, he's worth it. I can walk this road if he's with me. I can walk this road knowing where it's going. The road home is not our first choice. Look at verse 15 of Matthew 7. Keep it moving. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. We're just going to look at this one verse for this point. Verse 15, the road home is filled with deception. The road home is filled with deception. Beware of false prophets. First of all, Jesus tells us it's hard. Secondly, the road is going to be filled with deception. Maybe you remember the old cartoon. It's probably not politically correct, but I remember it had this sheep dog, he would sit on a bluff and he was overlooking the sheep. The sheep never said anything and the dog said almost nothing. All I remember was that the dog in particular, you couldn't see his eyes. And the wolf, of course, would come and, and the plot of the cartoon was brilliant. The wolf comes in a varied, various ways and the sheep dog, very nonchalant, always stops the wolf. But with the wolf, what's the wolf's job? Take sheep and eat it. Wolf's dogs, uh, the sheep dog's job is to keep them. Well, of course, one of the things the wolf would try is he'd come in dressed as a sheep. Of course, the, wolf dog, the sheep dog knows precisely what the wolf did. Could identify him quickly. And Jesus is saying here, beware of false prophets. False prophets come into the sheepfold. They come onto uh, the path we're walking, and their goal is what? Ravenous wolves. What is the goal of a wolf related to a sheep? To eat it, to destroy it, to kill it. The enemy's job as we're walking on a path that is already filled with difficulty is to convince us that he is telling the truth and Jesus is not. He will, the, the false prophets come telling all kinds of th things intended to convince us that we, we haven't really heard from Jesus. I might say this, uh, or a here are a couple of ways that uh, false prophets primarily sow de deception is number one, they tell us we're lost. You're on the wrong road. The deceiver will come and try to convince us we're lost and we don't know what we're doing. Uh, usually the way the deceiver or false prophets will do this is convincing us that either I am not really a child of God or God is not really that nice. And these are two things that are confronted with people who are dealing with difficult situations with their life. They will say, we will say, if all this is going on, I must not be very good. If all of these difficulties are coming up in my life, I must have really failed God in some horrendous way. This is what the false prophets and the deceiver will convince us. You didn't really find God. I mean, God would never do this to one of his children. I mean, that, doesn't that sound exactly what people were saying to Jesus on the cross? God would never do this to his own son. If you're the son, come off the cross. If we're going through suffering and difficulty, the, the false prophets and the enemy will try to convince us we haven't measured up, so therefore either uh, we, we must not have earned God's favor. The other thing that the false prophets will try to convince us of is this, is that God is a major letdown. 
God is nice. He's kind of like the teddy bear in the sky. But at some point in our life, we have to make our own way. God is nice to trust for religion and holidays. But you know, when it comes to really dealing with life, you're going to have to figure it out on your own. These are the two ways the enemy seeks to deceive us on the road. Convince us either that we don't measure up or that God doesn't measure up. Either we're bad or God is bad. Wolves who eat sheep, dressed like sheep, telling sheep what they think is true, that they may harm the sheep. What is the goal of the devil in the life of every human being? It's a simple goal. Do you know what the goal is? To kill everybody. He is a murderer from the beginning, and his goal is not merely to distract us from Christ. The goal of the enemy, through those who would teach falsehood, is to convince us God is not good, that we might separate ourselves from him and go to destruction or discount who he is. Here's a couple of things that wolves in sheep clothing will tell us are true. Are you ready? Number one, God should make life easier. If God were good, and I'm following his rules... God should make life easier. That's what a false prophet will say. Another thing a false prophet will say, if God is good and I am being halfway and behaving myself at least halfway, God should make my life better. I should be counted among the blessed. A wolf will trail us, God should be making my life easier. God should be making my life better. False prophets will tell us, even our own hearts in our fallenness will tell us, I know what's best. If God should be making my life better, I can in fact even tell you what are the three things God should be doing to make my life better because I, in all of my brilliance, know what's best. If God ought to be making my life better and I know what ought to be better, then therefore, God is not as good as he says he is, and he tends to cause harm. And I never cause harm because everything I want is good. I know you've never thought that before, have you? Have you ever made a, a really bad decision? None, nobody here. Okay. Well, this one's going to fall flat then. When we make a really bad decision, I do all my bad decisions on Tuesdays, Try to batch them. You say, yeah, don't make an appointment with me on Tuesday. All right. When we make a bad decision, usually what we say is, you know what, but I had, I had the right thing in mind. I had good intent. I meant to do the best thing, but, you know, I kind of blew it. What do you do? When God brings things into our life that are difficult, and he does, because he is God, and he knows what's best, we assume his intent is just to be a meaning. When I do bad things, listen, I've got good intention. When God does bad things, he's just kind of a jerk. Here's the problem. God never does bad things. He always does what is good and kind and what is best. And even my best things are filled with intentions that are evil. Let's look at a couple, just a couple of examples of this. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. The devil is tempting Adam and Eve with the forbidden fruit, and the devil says this. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any of the tree in the garden? Did God actually say? 
now I want to bother you a little bit. And you're like, what are you talking about? I've been doing that for 20 minutes. All right. I'm going to make a blanket statement that could be wrong, but, you know, I don't think so. I haven't been wrong yet today. You watch any preacher on TBN. Am I going down the wrong, am I going to get in trouble here? Okay, yeah, okay. Generally, the topics of those messages will be, did God really say Christian life is going to be hard? Did he really say that? I mean, he meant hard, but not like hard. You should be overflowing with cash, and if you're not, just look at the 1-800 number on the bottom of the television, make a donation, and your debts will be paid off. If you're sick, rub a cloth on your sickness, hold it up against the TV screen. I'm getting annoyed just saying this. And this is, did God really say that the path from here to heaven would be hard? He didn't. I mean, sure, it'd be hard. I mean, every now and then you might need a little hiccup, and so then you just make a donation to my ministry, and then you'll be fine. But most of the time, you should be living, I'm going to say it, your best life now. When I read Matthew chapter 7, I don't think my best life is now, is it? We haven't even got started yet, folks, so you better buckle in. We're, no, I'm kidding. Did God really say my best life is then? That this life is hard as I live a life of faith, facing difficulties, some of which are caused by the fallenness and brokenness of this world. Others of those difficulties will be brought by God himself to generate in me greater faith and obedience. Did God really say that? Yes, he did. And if I understand what God is doing, I will, in fact, even say, and God is good for doing it. And God is blessed that he's not giving me his best stuff today. He's saving that for eternity. And in fact, Jesus is, in fact, good enough to be worthy of walking this path we might not prefer. Did God actually say you will have a hard time in this life? Yes, he did. Okay, Matthew chapter 4. Jesus is being tempted by the devil in the wilderness. He hasn't eaten for a couple of days. The devil took him up on the holy city, on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, and God will commend his angels concerning you. In fact, he's quoting scripture here. He's quoting from a psalm. He's saying, listen, Jesus, if you're the son of God, and God is actually good, then he will keep you from harm. He will keep you from difficulty. Throw yourself down and determine to yourself that God will have to save you. And what the devil is doing here, and this is a common refrain in our own mind, if you are a son of God, God will be nice to you. And if God is actually good, he will be nice to you. And if you don't feel like God is being nice to you, either you're not good or he's not good. And Jesus is saying, neither. Don't put God to the test. I trust he is good, and I trust I am his son. These are the deceptions that we will hear over and over again, sometimes from others, sometimes from our own heart and mind. Did God really say I will face difficulty? Did God really say that's what this is going to be like? Am I really a son or daughter of the king? Boy, I don't know. I really blew it. Am I really? Is God really good? If he would bring this into my life, is, is this what God is? Is God really good? I, want, I need us to understand something about this. The devil really doesn't mind if we have really good doctrine and really good theology. James chapter 2 tells us the devil knows exactly what's right and wrong. The devil does not mind that we 
have a great doctrinal statement and know, have all our I's dotted and T's crossed on our theology and, and what the Bible teaches about God. Especially he doesn't mind it if it generates us some kind of arrogance and pride. What the devil is more concerned about is what I call pillow theology. Do you know what pillow theology is? Pillow theology is this. What do you believe when your head hits the pillow at night and you're left alone with your thoughts? Then what, what do you believe in that moment when the day is done and you don't know if, if tomorrow is worth it? In that moment, that's the theology the devil is concerned about. And in that moment, our minds will have to be formed in the image of Christ. Which, okay, I believe I'm a son of God. Why am I a son of God? Because Jesus was good enough to die on the cross for a lame like me. Can you believe it? Is God good? Yes, because I look at what he did through Christ for me. How could he be anything but good? That he would die on the cross for a lame like me? If you want to read a lot of pillow theology, read the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is filled with theology that is describing what it's like when somebody is left alone with their thoughts, and it's, it's good. The road home is filled with deception. Did God really say it will be hard? What's the answer to that? Yes, he did. If you really are a son or daughter of the king, and if God really is good, would he bring difficulty into your life? Yes, he will. And it will always be good for good. It will never be from evil. And it will never be to punish you. The road home is filled with deception. Just touch on very quickly, Job is a good model of this. <clears throat> Have you ever thought that it's unfair that bad people prosper and good people suffer? Isn't that terribly unfair? Bad people seem to do really well. Good people seem to suffer. We need to think about this just for a minute. We don't have time to go into it in detail. First of all, who are the bad people? Oh, now it's annoying. Okay, now all of a sudden we realize we said they're bad, I'm good. The Bible doesn't let me do that, does it? Who is good? Christ alone. Who is everybody else? Those who need Christ. Secondly, what does it mean to prosper? Is it unfair that bad people prosper? How long do people get to have wealth in this world? How long do people get to have comfort in this world? How long do people get to have health in this world? Like 20 minutes, tops. And you think, well, no, maybe 80 years if I keep my act together. Listen, this is terribly frustrating, but again, we've mentioned this multiple times, and nobody has yet to send me an email telling me I'm wrong on this. Are you ready? The mortality rate of this planet is 100%. If you want to know what wealth and health and prosperity looks like, read the book of Ecclesiastes. Richest guy with the most stuff, had the most fun, and at the end of the day, he said, what's on TV? Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. It's unfair that good people prosper. Who are the good people or bad people prosper? Who are the bad people? All of us. What is prosperity? Lame. Who are the good people? Christ alone. So let us be counted in Christ. And what is suffering? In the Bible, suffering is described as walking with Christ. A walk with Christ anywhere is better than a walk without Christ. 
anywhere. The road home is filled with deception. Okay, last few verses, verses 16 through 20. If you're, Matthew 7, verses 16 through 20. You ready? Talking again about the ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? Answer, no. Are figs from thistles? I don't gather figs, but I think they're grown on trees, so let's say no. Every healthy tree bears good fruit. The de- the, excuse me. The diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruit. The road home is a road of growth. The road home, let me say it this way, is a road of growth. Anybody ever rode the, uh, the jet boat tours down there out of Grants Pass or maybe the mail jet boats out of Gold Hill? Ever ridden those? What I love about those jet boats, most people, is the pilots. The guys driving the boats. Those guys are amazing. Number one, they have some halfway decent jokes. Um, you got to mix up and get different pilots because you probably hear the same jokes over and over. Why is it that those guys can drive those boats? I mean, those are, bit, those are fairly large boats. How? Listen, if I take a raft down the river, I'm going to hit the side of the river. What do you call that, the bank? No, a, a little Tahiti raft. At some point, I'm going to get caught up in the trees. And I'm like this little Tahiti raft. Those guys are driving these massive boats, and they're not hitting anything. How is it that they're doing that? Because they've gone up and down that river a time or two, haven't they? They could probably do that with their eyes closed because they know every spot in that river with such familiarity. Another way of thinking about this is these rally car drivers. You've ever seen these rally cars? They're kind of off-road cars, and they're driving full speed through the woods. Have you seen these guys? And you wonder, how are they doing that? Well, here's how they do it. There's a driver and they got a passenger. And the passenger's not looking out the windshield. What's the passenger doing? He's got a map and times on it. And he'll be yelling out to the driver through the little microphone dealio, turn left in 15 seconds, turn right. And the guy's just obeying what he's got. He doesn't even have to see it. So what it is is they have learned the course to such a degree that they know where they ought to be and where they ought not to be. And what Jesus wants us to understand is as we walk this road home, we ought to be getting better and better at seeing where we ought to be and where we ought not to be, and especially in identifying what is deception and what is not deception. In gardening, this is very simple. If you take rotten fruit off of a tree, the tree is probably bad. There's something wrong with that tree. I have one tomato plant that hates me. There are three plants in my little garden box. The other two are out of control. I mean, just tomatoes are falling off of them and crawling into my house and making themselves into spaghetti sauce. They're amazing. But this one tomato plant mocks me. I water it, I put the fertilizer on it, and basically, I'm not going. I'm going to turn kind of a yellowish green most of the time. What is your problem? There's something wrong with that plant. You don't have to be a brilliant gardener to know it. Like This this plant is not working. It's certainly in my fault. Good fruit comes from good plants. What Jesus is saying here is we identify what is good and what is not good in those who would bring us truth by their deeds, not merely by what they say. Many will say, as we're going to learn next week, Lord, Lord, we have trusted you, but not haven't. And what we learn to do over time is to say, is there fruit that reveals itself to be true? Okay, look at Galatians chapter 5. We need to go to Galatians chapter 5 very quickly. 
Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 16. The Spirit of God says this through the Apostle Paul, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. They're opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. If you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. So these are the not fruit, the rotten fruit, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I love that. Things like these. What'd you miss, Paul? Is there, there are other things like these that aren't in this list? I Okay. I warn you as before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit, so we have the works of the flesh against the fruit of the Spirit, are these. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, and we live by the Spirit and keep in step with the Spirit. Jesus wants us to understand what is the fruit of of the, of the life of the believer look like? He says it looks like these things, love and joy and peace and patience. Fruit that comes from a life of repentance where a person is saying, I want to no longer do the things God doesn't like and I now want to uh, serve God through obedience to worship him. How do we bear fruit in our life? It's not merely by bearing down and seeing how obedient we can be. John 15 says, when we abide in Christ, when we rest in the finished work of Christ in our life, he will bear fruit in us and through us. The fruit of the Spirit comes through us by the Spirit from Jesus, for Jesus, like Jesus, over time and in the face of suffering. Let me explain that again. The fruit of the Spirit comes through us by his Spirit from Christ, for Jesus, like Jesus, over time and in the face of suffering. Why do I say that? Because earlier in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged. Make sure that you take the plank out of your own eye before you mess with the little bit of sawdust in your brother's eye. And we're saying here, now it seems like he's being kind of judgy now. Saying, no, this is how you understand a false prophet. Somebody says they know the truth, they believe in Christ, but in the face of suffering and over time, do you observe the fruits of the Spirit in that individual? Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, self-control, gentleness. Or over time, does that fade, especially in the face of suffering? A false prophet, their fruit will fade and, and prove itself faulty, especially when that fruit is costly. Especially when bearing fruit in the body of Christ is difficult. A fruit of the Spirit is love. Notice Jesus did not say Love to those that are easy to love. The fruit of the Spirit is loving kindness in the body of Christ, even and especially for those who are difficult and challenging to love. Fruit of the Spirit, when costly, when difficult, when undeserved, when unappreciated. Uh, there's a great example of this in the Bible. It's Jesus washing the disciples' feet. I love this. Jesus washes the disciples' feet so that Four or five hours later, they can use those feet to run away from him. That's kindness and gentleness and love for the undeserved. The wolves 
the false prophets will want to bear fruit uh, when it's seen as beneficial, when others deserve it, when there's a return on my investment. Certainly I will love you if you will uh, serve me. False prophets will want uh, to bear fruit to cover misdeeds or former sins, especially unrepentant sins. A false prophet will say something silly like, I want to do lots of good to make up for the bad I've done earlier in my life. I say, you know what, I'll let Christ handle the bad I've done earlier in my life. You know what, for that I'll let him handle the bad that's coming up. I want to be loving and gracious by the Spirit because that's what Jesus does. The road home. The road home is not our first choice. question you might want to ask yourself and think about, and we all need to at some point in our life, even if not right now in your life, is the difficulty I'm facing in my life too much? Uh, there's a popular Christian phrase, Jesus will never give you more than you can handle. I hope this isn't a bumper sticker on your car. That's a bunch of malarkey. God will routinely give you more than you can handle. Listen, let me qualify that. He will only give you more than you can handle on weekdays and weekends. Because the idea is that you would stop handling and you would start resting. The road home is life too difficult. Is the difficulty too much? The question is not whether or not my, I need to figure out the, the secret combination to getting God to take my difficulty away. What Jesus is calling us to do is look at the finish line and say, God, would you move in my heart in such a way that that finish line, the presence of Christ forever, will draw me through this difficulty. If it never gets better, I can say, that's okay, I'm going there. God, will you move in my heart that I will love Christ so much that I can walk this path over there because that's good enough for me. How do we do that? It's through knowing Christ, especially through his word. The road home is filled with deception. You might hear a lot of teaching, especially because there's a lot of teaching on TV and radio nowadays. I would take Matthew 7 and apply it this way when you hear teaching. Just be careful that if it's too good to be true, it probably is. And you better be careful to make sure you know what God says is good. Let me just add to that, if you think the Bible teaches that God wants you to be rich, it's a lie from the devil. He wants you to be rich in Christ. I'll take my money there. Some days, other days I want it here. Finally, the road of growth, I should say the road home is a road of growth. We need to grow in the grace of Christ to be able to identify in false teachers fruit that is deceiving so we can avoid deception. How can we do this? One, uh, two ideas here. One is, be willing to those who listen to those who've been on the road for a while. So maybe you know somebody, and they say, you know, I just got a weird vibe about that person, that teacher. I've got a weird vibe about that book. And the first thing we do, especially as young people, say, oh, that old fogey. And they may be being an old fogey. They may have unspoken biases they're not letting go of. We got that. But sometimes it might just be a person who's been on the road a little bit longer and they can just sense something that's not right. 
And there's a reason the Bible teaches us, those of us who are older should teach those of us who are younger, and those of us who are younger, every now and then, even though we don't like it, say, you know what, they may know what they're talking about there. Maybe I shouldn't be doing that or listening to that. Be willing to listen to those who've been on the road a while, and they're saying, maybe that's not a good idea. Now, I know there's some kids in the room, you're going to hate this, guys. Those old fogies are called your parents. Okay, I'm first to admit it, there's a number of rules I have in my house that are just simply designed to make my life more easy. There are also things that we do, it's just simply because I've been down the road before. And your parents are probably the same way. Parents, you're welcome. The road home. Let's ask this question by way of closing. Where are we going? Where are we going? Who do we find on this road and at the end of this road? It's Christ. Jesus, who decided to leave the beauty and splendor of heaven, came down to walk this road with us. He came down and said, you know what? I'm going to take a break. I'm going to go and humiliate myself in death, even death on a cross, that I might redeem unto myself those who would believe. And for his own purposes, and in fact, for his own grace, he determined that when we get saved, we don't immediately die and go to heaven. He says, I want you to walk in faith the road home, and I want you to understand what the road's going to be like. It's going to be difficult, it's going to be filled with deception, and it's going to be a way for you to grow in your faith. We have to understand, in heaven, we can no longer grow in our faith, because we won't need faith there. The opportunity for us to grow in our faith is here, and he wants us to understand this is the road he was willing to walk first, and he wants us to walk with him. The question we finally have to answer with all of the real difficulty we face, is Jesus worth it? And I hope that you might see the beauty of Christ and his redemption makes it clear the answer is absolutely yes.